You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 185. And this is probably Fran's uh, most waited for <laughs> episode he's had for a while. He's uh, He's been beating the drum on... We should do a rooted discussions of all the, all, the, all the subjects that would maybe eventually get me killed. We could talk about yeah, this, yeah, honey. This is on the list this now. This honey... Masanto, we can we can do all of those yeah, all so, at once. But today we're joined by a recurring guest, uh, and that is Beth Yount from Penn State Extension. Uh, you may have heard her before on the Friends of High School Park episode yes. we did uh, with Cynthia Blackwood. Yeah, yeah. with Cynthia Blackwood, oh, quite a while ago now. It has been a while. It's so, been well over a year. Yeah. So Beth, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Awesome. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, just a little bit of the background why Beth is joining us today. Uh, during one of our Buzz episodes, we happened to go into one of our rants about um, fallacies concerning mos- mosquito control with big mosquito control companies and an experience that I had in my development. And uh, after that episode aired, uh, Cynthia Blackwood, Blackwood, who we just mentioned, reached out to me and said, you know, Beth, did an article recently that you should read, um, which I used for my article for the next buzz. And we thought it would be we, – we talk about – Tom and I have always discussed this informally but never formally because we're not experts. We we know how we feel about it and what we think, but we, we don't have all the facts. So after reading your article, we're like, we should totally have Beth on the podcast to talk about this, someone that, that does have – more more information than we ever ever do. So, uh, and that's how it happened. And then you agreed to come on, and we're here today. So we we appreciate that very much. How did what what sparked you to write the article that you wrote? What what led up to that that you felt that that article was necessary? So. Similarly to you, Fran, I had not just one, but many different um, representatives of some of the mosquito control companies come to my door, knock on the door and um, put a pretty high pressure tactic of all of your neighbors are doing this. It's all natural. It's all safe. It's all healthy. It's about protecting yourself and be part of the neighborhood and you can get a better deal if you work with your neighbors. And unfortunately for those poor salespeople, (laughs) they really picked the wrong house. Um, And I was seeing a lot more signs in everyone's yards that they were using the various mosquito control companies. And, uh, and I, it was apparent from the salesperson that they were not trained in biology or biochemistry and really didn't have anything more than the talking points they were given. And I realized how much misinformation 
is out there. And because I work in watershed protection with Penn State Extension, I know that we have a significant problem with reduction in insect numbers. And there is a very strong watershed component of insects because all of those things that we look to for healthy stream indicators, those macro invertebrates, many of them are actually just bugs. They're just insects. And uh, they sort of connect that aquatic and terrestrial world. But they're kind of essential to our survival. And we know from lots of studies that um, insects are in decline. So if you read uh, from Europe and from the US, lots of the counts that people are doing are showing we have maybe a 70% decline over the last 30 to 40 years. And so um, it's clear to me that everything that we're doing that might harm beneficial insects is something that we need to address on a systemic level. And I don't think mosquito control is anything new. I mean, I re- I, I've said this many times on the podcast. I remember as a kid in Levittown driving behind the DDT, DDT truck on a bicycle, seeing how long you could stay in the fog. You know, like I remember, I remember our parents saying you probably shouldn't do that, but they didn't make us not do it. You know, right. so the <laughs> I think even the you know, and and I was too young to to know all the information that was given to the parents. I should talk to my mom to see what she remembers about those times. But it's not something new. So we do have a history over the past four decades, five decades of of what has happened. But I think the big the business of big mosquito control to me has in the last five years really become a, a larger issue. Do you? Would you agree with that? Like, like ten years ago, I don't, I don't remember really. Just companies focused on mosquito control. Absolutely, I see now really the proliferation of signs throughout people's yards, and it seems like there's a very big marketing push um, where it became more of something that people did as individual homeowners rather than a municipal or state response. And I, I don't want to minimize the issue of mosquitoes, because obviously we know that they are a source of vector-borne disease, and um, we don't want to suggest that there is no appropriate way to control mosquitoes. We're just looking at trying to make sure that those uh, treatments are effective and also done in a way to minimize harm to other organisms. So I, I wouldn't advocate for people to fight against their municipalities doing their limited uh, spraying that is, you know, in compliance with environmental laws to minimize the risk of, say, West Nile virus. But um, it's the individual homeowners who are doing sort of the indiscriminate spraying that is very widespread and deployed in a very generalized way that has very significant impacts, Um, you know, because then we're talking about another form of non-point source pollution, right? It's coming from every single person's yard, yeah, it's now. Are you in an area? I know for for me where I live, the mosquitoes issue is is huge. It's it's hard in the summer, uh, being in your backyard uh, as soon as it hits dusk. Like, do you live in an area where mosquitoes are would be considered an issue? I think it probably depends from person to person. I spend a lot of time outdoors. Um, and I am typically not bothered. Um, sometimes in the evenings, especially on really hot, muggy summer days, uh, I find that I start to get bitten and I typically go indoors. So I think it probably depends on individual perspectives, like what that biting pressure is. I don't think I am in a particularly heavy 
uh, mosquito burdened area. We do have a former uh, waterway that ran underneath our neighborhood that was sort of redirected and piped, which is really typical in Philadelphia and southeastern PA. And that's how our, the, the stream behind our house is really redirected, stormwater piped, uh, mm-hmm. which was done in the 60s, but then completely naturalized around it. Um, so it's it's kind of a protected uh, throughway. Um, and I know that's where a lot of the problems come from. But before we get into it, I was just curious with, with the salesmen that came to your door, did any of them have an aha moment in talking to you or did they just feel overwhelmed and, and left? I think they felt overwhelmed and left because I don't think they felt that they had enough understanding or explanation to respond because I think they get talking points from their employer and they can only stick to those talking points, but they, they don't understand enough about what they're saying to be able to make counter arguments, um, which is, you know, sort of unfortunate on their side because I would like to see them have a better understanding of what they're saying anyway. <laughs> I, I would agree. My in my the one experience I had that the person had their talking points and you could tell it was what they were told to say and when I rebuttaled they, they didn't know what to do and, and they just he realized that quickly and just left. And yes. then they're not making the sale. <laughs> no, and then and he was in our development for three days, I want to say, like hanging out on people's properties. And I just spent a lot of time on the front yard, and he he wouldn't go near any of my neighbor's houses while I was outside. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm sure I I uh, hindered his a little uh, his sales uh, a little bit. But it, you know, obviously, it's become a it 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 has become a profitable business model mm-hmm. with how many. How many companies are out there at this point? I've even had this conversation with my brother-in-law because they had someone at their door and they were thinking about it. And I was like, here's some things for you to – I'm not telling you – and I said the same thing with my neighbor. I tried to be – I tried to be polite in the way saying you can do whatever you choose to do. I would just like you to be informed about both sides before you make that decision. And here are my – these are the points they told you. Here are my points. Um and in both instances, I had both both people reconsider, um, and 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 ask me questions about what they can do to to do a more natural thing on their own. So, and that's something we can go into as as we talk. But sure, um, one of the yeah. things I wanted to ask yeah. is, and and you mentioned this, I think a little bit, but. What is the incentive for spraying for mosquitoes? Why did this all start? Why did it become such a popular thing? So I haven't done surveys. I just have um, you know, tried to reason it out for myself. And I think it's typical of what happens a lot right now in the time that we live in where there is a, a very strong marketing pressure uh, where that's um, – a response to maybe a disconnect between the way people have lived in the past and they, the way they live now, right? So many people don't live outdoors very much and, um, and don't have the habit of thinking about natural cycles and natural food webs and connections that have existed since time immemorial, but people were more aware of them when we were more exposed to the outdoor world, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe we sat outside and watched bats 
swoop around and eat mosquitoes, right? I, I did that as a kid. Um, I do that. Was, I do that almost every night in the summer. Right. And it, it's pretty entertaining, actually. Yeah. Um, but I don't think people have that experience. And I think we also have the experience of um, believing that we can eliminate all problems, right? Like the, there's no risk analysis of anything. It's just that everything is fixable and everything is a problem if it's in any way inconvenient. So I think back, you know, 30 years, 60 years, a thousand years. And typically what would people do? Um, they would go indoors. <laughs> they would wear long sleeves and long pants. They might like um, make sure that all of, you know, in more recent times that make sure that everything has good screens around doors and porches and windows. Right. So I think we've gone beyond that to thinking that we have kind of like this uh, 100% success rate against anything that we find to be a nuisance. And we also have social media, right? So um, they put that information on social media so you're not just seeing it on commercials. And then your friends advocate for it because they're getting 10% off or some kind of you know, uh, monetary benefit for selling it to their friends. And I think that that very um, viral marketing strategy and disconnection from the outdoor world have combined to have this, you know, time that people think that all of these methods should be deployed through everybody's yards. Yeah. I, I was also wondering, too, if if a lot of this was either not – not so much began, but was strengthened during COVID because you have people spending more time at home, more time right. outdoors. At, you know, maybe you spend a little bit of time outdoors, but now you're spending a lot of time in your backyard and you're like, wow, I didn't realize how bad the mosquito problem is. I should do something about that. And I, I think I wonder if it also becomes a little fear based. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're dealing with COVID. You don't want to get COVID. You're thinking about how to prevent that. And then you're thinking about all these tick-borne disease or tick and, and mosquito-borne diseases. And you're like, I need to take care of this for the health of my family. So it's even some of the advertising to me is a little bit fear-based, but I didn't know if you felt the same way. That seems like a good explanation. I think people did spend a lot more time outdoors than they had been accustomed to. And maybe that was a first realization that, hey, there are these biting insects out there. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> you know I I have one neighbor that spends a lot of time outside, and they're the ones that have used it. And the neighbor on the other side, I I don't even know if I could pick them out of a lineup. They never go outdoors, so they in turn they don't worry about those things. That's not an issue for them. So right. I'm I'm thankful that they don't rake their leaves, that they don't spray for mosquitoes, but only because they don't spend any time outdoors. It's not an issue for them. So <laughs> it's a. Uh, it's it's interesting to think about how quickly and popular this has become. Um, but based on what what you've heard from the salesman, I think it'd be a good place to start. Is what are some of the bis, biggest misconceptions about spraying for mosquitoes or mosquito control? What are some of the things that are done that people are are kind of it's expressed in one way, but they're not given the full truth. What I notice in particular about the sales tactics is that they sort of represent a piece of the truth. And, and I'll start this by saying that, like you, my goal is not to advocate for people to do a specific thing. But, you know, the goal of extension nationwide in the U.S. is to bring science-based information to the public. And that's really my goal is to help people understand what they're hearing and maybe give some context to what that means, you know, in terms of risk analysis. So one of the biggest misconceptions I would say is they always lead with it's all natural. 
they might say organic, but organic actually has a specific meaning. So a lot of times they steer away from organic because that has a certification that has an actual intended meaning. So often they'll say all natural. And I will then usually ask them about um, morphine, which is the all natural product of, of the opium poppy <laughs> or you know other poisons or harmful things that come from nature, right? Because all natural doesn't mean it's safe, right? So yeah. um, did uh, we don't know whether or not hemlock was really you know deployed as a poison to kill prisoners in ancient times. But um, we know that hemlock comes from a plant and is a poison. So to say that it's all natural is really not a meaningful term and that has no legal basis so you can really say it about anything. Yeah. Um, and the other um, issue with that is that um, they also then say that it's safe, right? So um, we should probably talk about what it is because most of these companies, they're, they're a little bit difficult to track down what's in their blends because a lot of them are proprietary. So they don't, uh, they don't have the information publicly available. Some of them have patents and you can kind of dig around for that. But for the most part, they're using pyrethroids. And pyrethroids are just a synthetic version of a natural uh, chemical that's produced in a chrysanthemum flower, pyrethrins. And um, it is uh, a biocide, right? It's an insecticide. And it's a very effective one. It's lethal to insects. That's why they use it. So that's really the most common. And then uh, a lot of companies will also add in, um, you know, garlic oils or other essential oils, rosemary and things like that. And uh, pyrethroids are very effective in killing many insects. Um, and the other ingredients really are not very effective. So um, they're really probably more to smell nicer or maybe just have like a little bit of a boost. Um, so that's really what's in most of these formulations. And um, a lot of the companies will have very uh, – specific claims about how it will only kill mosquitoes and it won't kill anything else. And it won't kill bees because apparently people are very, very um, loving toward bees uh, to the extent that they want to save them rather than um, have them go along with the mosquitoes. But the biology of these insects is not set up in a way that you can selectively kill just what you think of as the bad guys yeah. <laughs> as opposed to the good guys, right? It's very general and non-selective. And so whether it's all natural or not natural, it's still a biocide. And whether uh, you care about bees or pollinators or whatever, you are, when you're applying these um, products, all of those insects that come in contact with it are going to meet the same fate as those mosquitoes would because they also biologically are having a negative reaction to the biocide. So um, it, it's really not accurate that you're only able to kill what you don't want. And it's really not accurate that all natural means safe. They mean safe for mammals, which it is considered to be safe in general for most mammals. There are some questions about, um, I think, some veterinary stuff. Um, certainly not my specialty, and I am not an entomologist, although I did write my article um, with the assistance of two Penn State Extension entomologists to really help me out with the, the more important um, biological stuff about the insect populations. One of the, the the question that I asked the salesman that came to my property that that sparked him to leave was he was showing me a 
a, a page of insects that it would target, but it would only target these. So I'm like, so if there's other Lepidoptera there and they're sprayed, you're telling me it won't affect them? And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, would you drink a glass of this chemical for me to show me how safe it is? And that he's like, I'm going to go. <laughs> and I think that's when you start to put it in that perspective – like I think he probably hadn't even thought about that because I'm sure who, whoever spraying it is wearing protective gear and, and things like that. Even if it's safe for, for, for mammals, I'm sure that there's no way, there's no one silver bullet that will just target what you're trying to target. Yes, and you know one of the things is that they use that word safe and they don't really define what safe means, right? They're probably thinking in terms of people's children uh, primarily, but um, – you know, it is really not safe for aquatic macroinvertebrates. So that's problematic because in aquatic ecosystems, it's really even more problematic than terrestrial ones. And it doesn't break down very rapidly. So safe is kind of a not well-defined word and one that people should be cautious about if somebody just gives you a blanket statement about safety. I uh, now I know this is a different topic and I, I – I know I've mentioned it on the podcast maybe once or twice, but it's not something that I proud, I'm proud of. But at one point in the 90s, I worked for True Green. For, mm. It was for less than a year, and I, I did sales um, for spraying for, for insects. I didn't do turf. I did uh, – sold spray treatments for, for uh, trees and shrubs. And occasionally if you ran out of leads, there was a, a – a stack of old customers that you call to try to bring them back on. And I, I, I'm not even exaggerating. One in five would tell me a story about a dead pet. Mm. Um, it was like, you killed my dog. Are you kidding me? You killed my cat. Like those types of things. You killed two cats. <laughs> you know, it's, and I was like, you know, and that kind of stuff just gets swept under the table and never talked about. But I, like in my head, I'm like, how many, I wonder how many people told me, that their pets were were killed, uh, at least a hundred. Now I don't know how many of those were were accurate. If it was other other things that contributed, but there were at least a hundred people that felt that that those chemicals had killed their pets. Now it's not something that was touted as all natural or organic, but if it kills something, how safe can it be? All natural or not? Right. And the intended, you know, the the sprays are actually intended to kill, right? Yeah. That's oh, yeah. really their purpose. And one thing that I notice is um, because I do have a number of neighbors who do spray and they typically are on the same spray schedule, I notice a lot of beetles and uh, butterflies and other insects that are dead <laughs> within a day of that spraying. And so that's clearly the bycatch or, you know, non-target organisms because it's, I mean, it's hard to know exact causation, but it's, it's a higher spike than you would expect to see of carcasses of insects lying around. And we, we tend to be very emotional about our pollinators and our pretty insects, but we have lots of really important insects that do things like cycle nutrients and decompose things and actually prevent disease. So we have to consider the fact that all of those have really important functions. And if we are taking them out of the ecosystem, we're eliminating the ability to do those functions. And also we have 
everything is something that is eaten by something else, right? So we have the things that are food for things and the things that eat those things. <laughs> and that's problematic at multiple levels of that food web. Well, I was going to ask that question next, actually, like beyond beneficial impacts, how do these chemicals affect just the food web or or the ecosystem around the property? Like does – if you're spraying for, for mosquitoes and you have a bat population that eat, eats mosquitoes, how does that affect them? Or how does it affect the birds that maybe eat the Lepidoptera that – were also sprayed like is there impact that way as well yeah and again these are things that nobody has studied yet because this has been this kind of sudden and dramatic spike but i would love to see somebody looking at those numbers because again like you're kind of creating gaps if you're effectively killing a large number of organisms and the thing that i think is not really apparent to people who don't look at ecology is that for instance fish eat bugs (laughs) right and birds eat bugs and actually other bugs eat bugs and reptiles and uh other um organisms like small mammals sometimes eat insects and you also have um even like mosquito larvae will eat other mosquito larvae so you have a lot of different um players who are involved in either eating or being eaten by something that is connected to organisms that are now dying in large numbers and also like on a scheduled basis, right? Like these spray companies typically come on a schedule. So you're kind of wiping things out before they're even continuing their own life cycle. Yeah. And and something you said there just, uh, just made me think of, um, of mercury and fish and that whole site it's like it's not necessarily the little fish that have the mercury issues is the big fish that are eating all the the little fish that have the mercury accumulation have you seen anything like that with um in other aspects of nature linked to things eating insects i don't i don't know if there has been anything that's been looked at in that way because you know they're fairly low on that chain i don't know that pyrethroids bioaccumulate i I think um that with mercury there's a component about um fats that makes it tend Mm -hmm. to bioaccumulate but i don't know if that's the case um but it does concern me when i'm thinking about you know all those amphibian populations Mm -hmm. that are eating all those insects that are either absent or now maybe um already containing something that maybe is not great for those aquatic organisms that eat them. Yeah. And then the other thing that I was just thinking of is uh, if you're saying people are, they're getting that spray done on a schedule. um, It doesn't seem like there's fewer mosquitoes now than there were uh, a decade ago, or even (laughs) like you think, is this something that would get better over time if, if with people continuing to spray? Yeah. Cause I, I mentioned like, I remember this as a kid. So like 40 years of spraying, why isn't the situation getting better? So that's another thing that is a really big concern to me. And I've actually observed this many times, which is that, um, we sort of uh, forget about the behavioral aspects of mosquitoes. So, for instance, um, people will often want to purchase a home that's, like, got a creek view <laughs> or a marsh view, but then they're 
devastated that they have mosquitoes. But that's something that like behaviorally, we should be aware that if you want to live in that aquatic environment, this is something that actually naturally lives there. Um, And maybe you want to have uh, smaller numbers, but you have to be aware that like you've moved into uh, an ecosystem that supports those those bugs, right? Um, But the bigger issue is that um, people who are doing the mosquito spraying, it's um, sort of like uh, the laziness of um, herbicide use, right? Where we don't think about the life cycle of the the treated area. We don't think about what our goals are. We just want a quick fix. We're going to slap on some herbicide and not really think about it. So this is the same kind of strategy. They are having people come and spray, but they're not removing standing water. They're not making sure that they're wearing long sleeves and long pants, right? They want the solution to come from the chemical application and not from the things that they do on their property. So I um, see people routinely, the mosquito sprayer comes and they have kiddie pools that are on their lawns that are filled with water for two, three weeks. So the mosquito life life cycle can be anywhere from like, you know, seven to 10, 12 days. So you really want to change that water out minimally once a week. So bird bath and uh, buckets and planters and kiddie pools and toys that contain water. So I have um, at my house a wheelbarrow that has all these little um indented spots on it. And I know that when it rains, I have to go and flip it over and get rid of that water because it will accumulate and mosquitoes nest in that water, right? That's where they're breeding. They need to have that standing water, ideally with some organic matter to feed their young. So if we are not willing to make the effort to remove those breeding locations, then that spraying is not going to make a difference because the spraying targets adults. And that's not the effective way to go after mosquitoes. The effective way is to target the larvae and the breeding sites so that they can't reproduce. Because if you think about one adult mosquito has to come in contact with that spray and they come out during the day, but that's not when mosquitoes are typically there. And they usually walk around the yard spraying, but that's not where mosquitoes are because they want to be out of the sun and out of the wind. So what they should be doing is looking for those targeted areas like a wood pile or an area underneath a porch and coming maybe dawn or dusk when you might have the mosquitoes around. But if you're targeting the larvae, then you have the ability to take out many, many, many organisms at once rather than just one adult. So that would certainly represent a reason that the spraying does not reduce the mosquito numbers because you're not really going to reduce those populations significantly if you hope that the 10 adults that might happen to fly through while you're spraying are going to be impacted since it's a contact. Yeah. And and I know it's possible, you know, what what sparked this conversation, it probably goes back almost 4 years was an article that we did on the podcast for a buzz episode about Walt Disney World and they were saying if you think about it, Walt Disney World was built on a marsh. <laughs> but yet you go there and you never get you never get bit by a mosquito. And they they realize early on, well, we can't for the for the safety of our guests, we'll never be able to spray. So what can we do? So they made sure that there's no standing water anywhere on the park. They make sure it all drains somewhere. They get it off. I think around the perimeters, they have uh, farms of guinea hens that will take care of mosquito uh, populations around the edge uh, to pre- kind of prevent it going in. So they kind of manage that area even around it without spraying. To make sure that you know now granted they had the time and the money to do it but 
they thought out ahead of time that we need to be safe about how we do this. What is our plan? And they do it all without any treatments. So it can be done. But if you're buying a house with a waterfront or, or, or a backyard with a creek growing through it, those are some of the things that most people don't think about. Now, are, are they – is there starting to be findings about how this affects water supply at all? How spraying, spray, spraying, yeah. No, again, because it's so recent, I haven't been able to find any research that's been done in any meaningful way. And, you know, maybe something that emerges over the next several years as it becomes more popular to see what the impacts are, because uh, it's just so widespread that it would be surprising not to see some kind of impact from it. Um, And especially um, as we think about, you know, the populations are still continuing because, People aren't thinking in terms of where the mosquitoes are coming from. They're thinking about how do I deal with the mosquitoes, right? So many of us may have um, conditions that are really ideal for mosquito breeding, but we're not aware of it. So like you could have a blocked gutter that accumulates a little puddle in it. And that's great, right? Because you have organic matter in there and you have standing water. And for a mosquito, that seems like a great um, habitat. But for us, we're not really thinking about that. So because we're not thinking in those terms, it's probably going to be even more likely that people turn to the spring because they don't they don't have the awareness of like, oh, I need to disrupt that habitat. I need to disrupt that breeding cycle. So that would be really great, I think, information and outreach is to help people realize how much they can do just by, you know, changing out that bird bath, making sure that you don't have t- like tires have a tendency to accumulate a lot of water and and people don't even think about it, right? But if it rains, that can be a really wonderful breeding ground, you know? And it doesn't take a lot of water. <laughs> Yeah, it, and it doesn't take a lot of water. It it just right. I think a bird bath is one of the things that we realized in in our property because we wanted to have a bird bath uh, um, that you, we had to change that water regularly. Like we had right. to be diligent about it. Like if you want to do it, you have to take care of it. And going back yeah. to uh, to Tim Mack with the yeah. birdscaping, he'd probably say you want to change the water out and clean the bird bath what once a week anyway yeah. for for, right, for the disease birds. issues for the birds. <laughs> um, yeah, that was just for everyone. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you clean your kitchen, you clean your bathroom. Why wouldn't you do that for what you're doing for the birds? It doesn't, it doesn't change. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Like we're talking about some of the ways, and we can go into it more, that like the right message about mosquito control or the right ways to do it. We're going up against uh, an industry that has a lot of money to put out whatever like, – like I mentioned, there's mailers all the time. you know. And some of the things behind the scenes that, that maybe our, our listeners don't necessarily always think about, there is an instance. We have a, a future guest coming up, Way Future, Scott Mid- McArt from uh, Cornell – uh, that his team put together this very lengthy report about the effects of neonics. And what what kind of brought it to my attention was there was an article refuting it in the New York Times. And he's like, I had written an article for this author with all the 
the good points, and he goes, I can tell that his article was written for him by the chemical companies <laughs> mm-hmm. to refute. But these are all the things that he said were wrong, and here are all the pages on the report that shows that they're not wrong, that they're actually right. You know, like he just is ref- refuting the information. And it's just – it's a matter of information sometimes, who has the mm-hmm. louder voice, who has enough money to to say what they're saying is right. What are, what are some of the ways that that our listeners can help spread the right message or word about the proper – you know, the, the hazards of mosquito control and some of the, the better ways to handle it? It seems that the best way to approach people is taking the approach like Rachel Carson or like Doug Tallamy, even groups like Trout Unlimited, Ducks Unlimited, um, Audubon, right, is to connect people to what they care about and help them see those connections, right? If you care about fish, you care about what the fish eat, and you may not be aware that what happens on your property is affecting the health of your waterway and actually maybe even your preferred fishing species, right? Because lots of organisms are ecological indicators, but we don't always say it that way. And um, one thing I really like about um, Doug Tallamy's approach is that he really does talk about what you want to see on your property, right? He thinks about it in terms of what you're hosting. And it's such a positive message and it gives people something to manage for. And especially if you can combine that with um, practical tips for things that they can do. Like for instance, um, people often give the advice to use the mosquito dunks, you know, in the mosquito granules of the BT, the Bacillus thuringiensis. And um, if people can do that on a group basis, like if you have 80% or plus of your neighborhood or community with everyone having at least two of those traps, you have a much better chance of controlling the mosquito pressure because it's kind of like everyone is working together to manage the overall landscape. And, uh, and it's not so difficult, for instance, to just tip over that kiddie pool once a week and make that a habit, right? Like go around once a week and make sure that things are tipped and things that you don't want to have the hassle of routinely um, emptying out, make sure they're covered or screened with screening that's small enough that mosquitoes can't get through. So um, I think if you can help people make that connection to natural systems that they love and care about, whether it's a butterfly or a a bird or a fish or an amphibian. Um, It it really brings that connection home and makes them care about the ways in which they can improve life or the habitat for those other organisms. Because uh, I think people have a deep emotional connection to a lot of uh, aspects of nature. It's different for different people, but um, that's a, a really positive place to connect with people. I love that, and I know that's a message Tom always kind of brings up on the podcast as well is that there's always something that someone cares about in mm-hmm. order to find common ground. Though, like a lot of the organizations, you know, I know you've mentioned this plenty, some of our early guest ideas when we talked about like the National um, Wild Turkey uh, mm-hmm. Federation. Mm-hmm. That you may not agree with hunting, but some of their goals are the same as your goals as far as environmentally, mm-hmm. like building good, 
good habitat and things like that. So if you can find good common ground or find something that someone feels passionate about, about butterflies, about the monarch, about things that they can control or, or would change their their ideas, that makes a big it makes a big difference. Um I know we talked about bats eating mosquitoes. Do mosquitoes have natural predators? In, sure. in our areas. Bats, bats are predators, and um, there are lots of other organisms we've talked about that eat mosquitoes, right? Like salamanders and toads and frogs and fish and birds and other mosquitoes and other insects. So they do have natural predators. Um, I wasn't able to find any research indicating that that alone will uh, successfully reduce uh, mosquito pressure because, you know, we have very uh, – developed in not very natural landscapes. So it's possible there was a time when it was very balanced, but it's also possible that what would be sort of in ecological balance would still exceed our willingness to have those mosquitoes around because we don't like to get bitten or be itchy. So um, there are predators and they do play a role, but they're probably not the only or best option for mosquito control. Yeah. When I always think of mosquitoes being an issue, you know, the ecologist in my brain wants to say, oh, well, it's an ecosystem out of whack. That's what's allowing for this one species to – their population to be out of control. And I don't know what situ- – because there's plenty of natural situations where mosquitoes are still an issue. I just don't know what the ideal condition would be to keep the mosquito population under control. And, and like you mentioned, control where they breed. If you can control that, I'm sure that's half the battle right there. And the numbers are just so tremendous. You know, it's sort of like um, when people were making the recommendations about spotted lanternfly and you had people running around trying to stomp on a single adult. And, okay, so maybe if you spend your entire day doing that, you stomp on 100 adults. But if you scrape off that egg sac, you're getting 50 young. You know, so to have that that larval control is really very impactful in terms of the numbers, right? And those are not going to reach adulthood and produce a new generation. Yeah, it's and before I forget too, when you brought up the bug um uh the the buckets where you were saying if everyone in the community if if you want a, some interesting reading, I was looking at those on Amazon. If you go through the reviews, which I thought that was pretty interesting because it was a lot of those comments like if you have one or two it might do a little bit, but you really need a lot of people to buy in. And then the people that were saying, I still see bees in the bucket. It may not be a large quantity, but they're still capturing some beneficial things that I don't want them to capture. So right. it's not it's not foolproof. You're still getting there's, – there's still some casualties off the side, and they're like, this is just what we see. We don't know what else we're, we're missing. Right, and, and that's actually a good point to talk about is that – uh, we can't really expect to have 0% off-target death of insects, right? It's difficult to have 0%. But like the idea of integrated pest management is that you look at the risks and you look at the benefits of each uh, method as well as its effectiveness, right? And you measure your strategy by how much each of them kind of ticks those boxes. So if you, if something is very effective, has a small amount of off-target impact, but has a very large uh, impact on the target population, then that's probably where you want to go. So you don't want to lose those additional organisms that uh, accidentally 
get baited in with the mosquitoes. But relative to the number of mosquitoes you're getting, the percentage is high of mosquitoes, and so that's a good strategy. Um, whereas, like, for instance, with the spraying, as I mentioned, you know, if it's done at a time when the mosquitoes aren't present and a lot of it gets uh, washed off in the rain and a lot of it hits non-target organisms, then that is not really a good approach because it's not very successful and it does have a lot of negative impacts. So from an integrated pest management point of view, that risk-benefit analysis doesn't really stack up. Now, I know I, I can't remember the – oh, um, Tom and I, both for different reasons, both both use thermocells like mm-hmm. – I don't know what impact that – whatever it's it's releasing, I don't know what impact that has on the environment. But I look at that as a way to kind of at least be outside, be able to minimize the impact they have on me without spraying anything or, or mm-hmm. doing anything. Um, or even the one of the one of the conversations that I had with my neighbor – like and I don't know these things too, like citronella. Like is there any – like if it works, is there any negative impact for using citronella? Probably just the volatile organic compounds that are released when you have (laughs) the burning of it or the oils. Um, It's it's fairly low on effectiveness. I think the EPA has a list of different um, chemicals that you can apply that do deter biting. So those aren't things that are biocides, but they deter biting. And there are a few that are effective. I mean, obviously, we know that DEET is effective, um, but a lot of people have a bad reaction to it and you don't want to use it in large amounts especially on children but um, it can reduce biting and i think um, soybean oil is one of them but the epa has a list of with the effectiveness Um, and that's you know the goal is to avoid the bites right so a lot of times that can just mean covering up and um avoiding certain times or locations when the biting pressure is high or making sure that areas where you want to be during times of high mosquito pressure are um, in a screened area where you aren't going to be impacted. I know a lot of the times if I know we're having people over, we're going to be outside for a while, I'll start a, a fire in the backyard mm-hmm. just to I, – I find that it, it, it minimizes it at least a little bit. If you're sitting by the fire, right. you don't tend to – to feel as if you're getting bitten as much, but right. So, hey, the little side side yeah. fact here. Yes. Do you know, like you've Beth, you too. But when you're sitting around a fire, it always seems like wherever you are, the smoke like always finds you and comes yeah. to you. It's it's actually like scientifically that that is true because it's uh the think about it like weather fronts. Yeah. It's like uh-huh. you're creating like a low pressure system in front of you by blocking all the right. impact so then the smoke is going to come that way because there isn't the wind or anything else forcing it to go the other way yeah. or outside uh even if you have it's still basically you're trapping warm air in front of you and then it starts to move that way instead of that getting blown or or, or um I'm, I'm really struggling to say this yeah. right now. No, I, I get But you kind of get what I'm saying? Yeah, it's I, uh, you're yeah, you, creating you like a block that and that's where it it starts I, coming to it. I I attribute it to Whenever I go in our hot tub by myself, we have a floating thing that distributes mm-hmm. chlorine, and whenever you go in, it floats to you because you're blocking the jets. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. the jets are blowing it. Toward, so I'm, I'm, I pictured the same thing. Yeah. Like you're sitting there, you're blocking everything. So yeah, yeah, according. Yeah, but I guess yeah, even if it's still, you're trapping warm air, more warm air in front of you than the rest of the circle. 
assuming you're sitting there by yourself. And it's so the warm air is actually rising faster, which creates that vacuum effect that then sucks the smoke towards you. That that's was awesome. a much more succinct way of saying it. <laughs> has nothing to do with mosquitoes, but, but maybe know. that's why it disrupts the mosquitoes yeah. around as well. Maybe yeah. it's harder for them to fly there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's, that's true. Um, I know we mentioned uh, not having standing water or making sure you're minimizing those impacts. Are there any impacts that we didn't discuss that would be good control measures? Like we talked about fire, things like that. Is there anything that we didn't? I just before we move on, I don't want to leave anything out if there's if there's yeah. I would just say you know making sure that those breeding sites are taken care of, and you know if you feel like you really need to have spraying on your property, make sure that you discuss with that applicator that you want it to be focused on target areas where mosquitoes rest or breed. Um, So those are really just the big you know big bang for your buck because some of the things that people use like like the bug zappers. Um, those are not effective. And like studies throughout the 90s from multiple um, institutions, you know, University of Florida, I think, and um, University of Delaware and a few others where they found that less than 1% of what was killed by those bug zappers were biting insects. And um, and half were important um, insects for watershed health. Wow. So you're getting a lot of killing of non-target organisms that are beneficial and you're not really achieving anything that you think you are. So because mosquitoes are attracted by carbon dioxide, right, that's being given off by humans, that's what allows them to know that they're finding a good host. And um, the bug zappers really go with the light attractant. So it attracts lots of organisms that are not the biting thing, lots of moths, for instance, you know, it's the moth apocalypse. So that's really not a good strategy. And, and when you think about it, like when you do a moth night, you're putting all these different black lights, ultraviolet lights to bring moths. Right. But that's what a, you're attracting them to their death. And it's exactly. it's not something I've, I've seen a lot of. I, I know I still see them in the stores. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they came out, How I remember everyone having one. Um, I, I can't it's say that. porches sometimes. Yeah, I was going to say I haven't really witnessed one recently, which I guess is – or heard it. <laughs> I heard that sound, which I, which I guess is a good thing. And I, you know, it's funny because all these things we talk about, I know a lot of people don't think about watershed health, what that overall effect is on, on watershed health. For, in, in your experience, how is – and I know it, it varies. Just how is overall watershed health? These days, are we are we seeing uh, a more rapid decline? Do we have healthy watersheds in in your area that you deal with, or is it? Are are we just hanging on, or or is everything okay? <laughs> well, I guess the good news is that it's better than it was fifty years ago, right? Okay. Before the yeah. Clean Water Act, so seventy five years ago when the Clean Water Act was passed, we had a lot of very very degraded watersheds, and um, we have seen some waterways that have really uh, improved dramatically. The Delaware River has improved dramatically. It used to have like almost no dissolved oxygen, very poor fish species, uh, really poor overall health. And when people would do um, like monitoring activities, I think it was really just so depressing for them. And, And it has definitely improved and we've had the rebound of some species, much better oxygenation, but it's still really, um, I guess I would say our waterways are still in peril because we have a lot of development and I hadn't been thinking very well about um, 
how we manage those waterways, right? Like we kind of forgot about the biology for a while and thought about, you know, chemical inputs and all of that stuff, but it's really all one whole system. And it took us about 400 years to put them into terrible shape. So we haven't had as much time to try to improve them, but there are a lot of people um, in our area who do a lot of work to try to restore or at least improve those ecological conditions. So um, I know like in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania, uh, a lot of people doing work with um, like freshwater bivalves to help improve water quality and living shorelines and more naturalistic approaches. And really that all does take advantage of the ecology and we hope to see more of those important players in good health in those streams and waterways. It, it's it's wonderful to see, especially like as a kid growing growing up in Levittown, the the few greenways there were. They were dumping grounds, or mm-hmm. that's where you partied, you know, and that's <laughs> that's what they were for. So to see like organizations like the Green Hall over uh, or the Greenbelt Overhaul Alliance of Levittown doing the work they do, cleaning them and, and planting them and, and education, which is a huge aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, it kind of warms my heart because I remember as a kid, I had a friend that lived on the Delaware River in Bristol and going over, my parents would be like, don't touch the water, whatever. You oh, do. yeah. Don't, don't touch it. Don't go in that water. Like I, I would get warned every time I went over. And you don't hear that nowadays. And I know we had – I don't know if you know Tanya Dap, Dapke from uh, – Academy of Natural Sciences. She does a lot of uh, macroinvertebrate uh, tests mm-hmm. along the Delaware River. I'll, I'll have to give you her, her information, but she was Definitely. just saying like that the health of the Delaware has, has changed, you know, for the better. Like, oh, I don't, yeah, it's a good story. This <laughs> <laughs> is definitely a good story. So it's, but I think so much of what we do, people don't think of where these chemicals go. What right. what the overall impact is because these are just a couple chemicals that that I'm sure you, you, you factor in all the chemicals pe- people may have in their their sheds as far as sure herbicide. it's all part of the stew that comes from our roadways and lawns right and yeah. our salt our pet waste our fertilizers and herbicides and then this is just one additional piece and I think that's really the important thing for people to understand because nobody probably connected watersheds and mosquitoes but um, watersheds are land (laughs) people think of watersheds as waterways but watersheds are the land that drains into the waterways so what happens on land affects what happens in water and all that health is tied up together now a good part of this conversation is and I, I just mentioned it earlier is education, mm-hmm. um, and and that's what your article is. Had have you been given feedback on your article? Um, like once it, I, I know sometimes it's in a vacuum and you don't always get all the feedback you want once something goes out. That's always the hardest part for me with the podcast. I don't know how Tom feels, but sometimes when there's no feedback, you're just like, well, I don't. I think it was good. I don't know how it's good. Did, have you gotten feedback on your article? I don't get feedback on my articles because, you know, they sort of go out on a, on their on, online presence and in uh, newsletters, but I don't get anything that responds other than number of clicks, right? How yeah. many people clicked and read that article is really the only way that I can um, find out if it's useful to people. But, but I hope it's useful to people, and I hope that um, it provides education that 
maybe changed uh, the way people thought about um, how things that we see as a nuisance may be something that we need to reframe and learn how to adapt to living with. So I am going to put the link to that article in the show notes. Um, we shared it before when when the buzz episode, but I'm just going to encourage our listeners to share that article on social media. Um, if it if it helps one person or makes one person think differently um, about the process, it's I, I think it's worth doing. Definitely for because I'm sure we're having this conversation now, and it's only going to fall on the ears of the people that are listening. <laughs> and. Right. And uh, a lot of them are already the choir. So how can you help spread this message? And if, if we can spread that article and just overcome some of the misconceptions that a lot of people think, you know, it's I, I look and a lot of people have two, three, five hundred thousand friends on Facebook uh, or, or Instagram. If you can share that and change one person's mind, that's a big that's a big deal. Yes, and help your neighbors and mine when they have that person come to their door. Yeah, our, <laughs> to evaluate whether it's really worth what they are saying. <laughs> you know, I'm just wondering, Tom, how do you feel about if if uh, maybe as a follow-up graphic for social media, we put up like every salesman that works for a mosquito spray company has their talking points. Mm-hmm. Maybe we put together a graphic with a list of homeowner talking points when, yeah. when oh, yeah. a spray person comes to your, yeah. your house. Nice. I'm gonna, Good questions to ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's um maybe that's a fantastic we can gather some of the things we talked about and just do a nice graphic and that would be something mm-hmm. even easier. We'll still share the article, but maybe an easy thing to share on social media that you know, or misconceptions about mosquito spray or, yeah. or talking points when approached about spraying for mosquitoes. Yeah, no, I think it's a good idea. Awesome. Awesome. So I think we're we're probably at. The, do you have any follow up questions? Before no, that's really all I had. Beth, you did a really great job of like lining a lot of that out. Yeah, pretty succinctly. I needed that for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess before the last question, where do we go from here? Is it is it more education and and information? Is that our best step forward at fixing fixing these issues? Education and you know instilling that sense of wonder around nature so that people care and that's what we need and i think a lot of people do i think uh some of it's just misinformation or or a lot of the times the only information you're getting are from the companies who want your business um sure. yeah. <laughs> you know because there's there there is a huge benefit from not spraying and it's it's not one that's going to get presented mm-hmm. because you're you're helping promote a more healthy ecosystem or watershed and mm-hmm. and more balanced uh food web so it's it's all things that that people need to think about that isn't showing up in their mailbox <laughs> mm-hmm. and and it's not showing up in your mailbox because there isn't the financial incentive for yeah. it to show up in your mailbox and that's a, a something we've talked about before is how great would it be if everyone who got that uh, mosquito spray flyer or or lawn green up flyer, those kind of things. Had another flyer come in the day after saying, hey, here's the other side and maybe why you, you don't want to do that. Um, basically what you're talking about with those talking points. Yeah, But it takes money to do that, and it takes money, in that case, not expecting money in return. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, when we started talking about this, you sent a picture to me. We don't have to say that the company name, but it was – you know, as far as advertising, it was a fully wrapped work vehicle. And what was the message on it again? 
that that it only kills mosquitoes yeah. and not bees, and it has a giant picture of a European honeybee on the actual van. <laughs> you, you know, and when you sent me that, I was like, you know, and that's driving around, and how many people see that, you know, and that's that's their business model, and and I I get it. Um, you know, you can look at it as it's a tool in your toolbox, and we always use that analogy that that you you have to. You don't want to use one tool for everything. There's no cure-all. You know, if you can minimally use a tool to help here or there, I'm sure there's instances that that maybe it's necessary where there's limited impacts. Um, where it's appropriate, it's yeah. a great tool. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm I'm thinking of I know, you know, there's certain parks that you go to that at in the evening the mosquito mm-hmm. pressure is so you know, and they want people to come to the parks and enjoy them. I'm sure that. Spray is getting used on those, but there's also a lot of standing water and a lot of also a lot of a lot of potential breeding grounds that can be fixed as well. So, and I'm sure that's not getting pitched to them. But you know, I it's you, you don't want to do away with any one tool if, if it could just be used appropriately. That's mm-hmm. you can't use a hammer for everything, right? So, all right, I think we are at the point. Where we always ask the same question. You've got to answer this before. I wish I would have looked up what your answer was the first time. But it's always the last question, the simplest question, and the hardest question. And that is, what is your favorite native plant? Such an unfair question. <laughs> I remember what I answered last time, but I'm going to go with a different one this time because right. it's a different time of year. Which it's it's allowable. It's allowable. Um, uh, sassafras. Those beautiful, like deep red little mittens on the ground are so lovely right now, mm-hmm. and uh, it makes me just appreciate them all over again. And the the aromatic smell of the leaves. So right now it's sassafras, but if you ask me next week, I'm sure it will be different. <laughs> and sassafras, as far as importance for wildlife with the the fruit, is so huge. Like our propagator always says when he's collecting seed, like you go and you you know it's. It's like three days away from being ripe, and he goes, when you show back up when that fruit is perfect, you're fighting birds. If you can even get any fruit, you know, and that's always the hardest. Getting seed for that is always the hardest uh, just because of how how much wildlife enjoys that. Like it's mm-hmm. a staple, so it's – we're always limited with what we get, and that's it's probably a good thing because you're helping. You're, you're <laughs> right. not taking food away from those that need it, but uh, that's a fantastic – that's a that that is definitely a fantastic choice. I'm not sure that anyone has chosen that before. Yeah, not that I recall. Not that I recall. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're to to close up. We always end with final thoughts, and and we we'll start with you. But Tom and I will take a, a, a turn at this as well. But this is where we hand the floor over to you, and you can use it however you want. You can summarize. You can add something that we didn't talk about. You can promote, but however you choose to use it. Now is your time. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm just going to reiterate that, um, you know, find what you love about the the nature and the world outdoors and try to understand how the dots connect to ensure that that piece of nature is surviving and thriving. I love it. I love it. Fantastic. Final thought. You want me to go or do you want to go, Tom? I can go. Okay. And um, mine's actually very similar is is uh, everything is connected in, in a way. And um your one action here does have a ripple effect uh, down the line, and there is no, I guess, perfect 
option in a lot of cases. Yeah. Every action, just getting in your car and, and driving to work has an action, is an action that has negative consequences, whether you know them or not. It's just recognizing what those consequences are to your fullest extent and then making a choice that can find the most balance. Um, and even I remember yeah. when we when we interviewed Benjamin Vote saying, yeah. you know, I still have a car that takes gasoline. <laughs> you yeah. know, I still have these things. I'm still going to heat my house. You know, I'm still going to do certain things, but how can you minimize it yeah. the most? And the one thing I'll add on there too is is also trying to not drive yourself crazy while doing all that too. It's uh, <laughs> being being ignorant is not an excuse, but sometimes it would be a lot easier to live life not knowing some of this stuff. Oh, definitely. So for mine is it seems like a reoccurring theme whenever we talk about anything environmental uh, related. Education is such an important aspect of this. Don't believe everything you read. Don't believe everything you see on the side of a truck or that someone tells you. Do your research. I, I wonder how many – You know, it's even if you're approached by a salesperson like that and you don't know all the answers, don't make a, a, a quick judgment. Take some time. Say you want to think about it. Do a little bit of research. Ask some questions. Um, you know, you can please feel free if you have someone that you think will benefit. Share this podcast. Not everyone's going to sit and listen for for sixty to ninety minutes on on a certain topic, but uh, share share Beth's article. Uh, we're going to create some graphics. Share those. Just get the word out. Like it takes all of us to spread this and be part of the solution and and. And help educate people in a in a way that they're receptive and everyone's different. If you have to find common ground, if you have to politely uh, explain some of the impacts, there's there's very kind and polite ways that you can be a part of it. And it could just be, you know, I'm not even going to talk to you about this, but I'm going to drop drop an article in your mailbox if you have if you have time, you want to read it. Uh, let everyone discover this at their own rate, and if we can convert. Every other person, one in three, one in five, we're we're doing such a wonderful job for our environment. So yeah. there you go. Awesome. Well, that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you very much, Beth, for uh, for joining us. Um, and Fran, you gave me the advice to change all that, and I didn't do it. Uh, I, <laughs> but so. we're gonna we're gonna link Beth's article uh, in the show notes. Yes. Um, if you haven't had a chance to read it yet from when Fran presented it. And uh, and Beth, where can they find more of, of your work? So uh, my work will be at Penn State Extension. You can just search Penn State Extension uh, Master Watershed Steward uh, or my name. And uh, for those people who are in New Jersey, you have the Rutgers Extension oh. as well. So you, whenever you have questions, you can always reach out to your local extension agent, and they probably will have some good resources for you. So we have lots of good information and fact sheets. Yeah, and a little uh, plug for our Rutgers uh, Extension office. They are starting enrollment for their – or taking applications for their environmental stewardship program, oh. which I think goes through – I don't know when it ends. We'll follow up. <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes too and say when the environmental stu- uh, stewardship program enrollment uh, expires. But for folks in New Jersey, uh, I know there's quite a few listeners who already have done this. But um, but if you haven't, it's something that's pretty cool and uh, and encompasses the whole state. So I'm going to look um, it up while you're doing your right. spiel. Friend. All right. So we're going to thank the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing to our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their uh, music wherever you consume music. Or if you're in the Philadelphia area, they play in Maniunk uh, very often. 
Thank you to Dave Bennett for our Native Plant Anthem. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we also have our own Instagram page at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. Don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us on 215-346-6189. I will repeat that. 215-346-6189. You can uh, ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. A lot of people asking questions on Spotify now. That's uh, becoming a trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and let's not forget about our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Just keeps growing and, and staying just as kind. So that, that makes me ha- – I was worried how scalable that was at first because we had this tight little community that was very polite and kind and as I – grew and and you started getting lots mm-hmm. of people i'm like oh i wonder when this is going to change and it hasn't and i'm very proud of that yeah yeah that's awesome oh Rutgers environmental stewardship oh man how did i do this i covered <laughs> up my screen because i hit the wrong button don't save okay there we go uh it, you can register now um and uh classes convene uh tuesdays from january 23rd to may 14th from 5 30 most of it's on zoom and um, the class fee is $325, but if you sign up before December 31st, it is $300 as an oh, early bird discount. So, nice savings. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, – and it's basically by region in the state. So the re- state's broken up into five regions. You have a couple more coastal. Uh, we're in region four here in Burlington County, but um, – Beth, do, does, does Penn yeah. State Extension have a program like that at all that you'd want to yeah, plug? I would- Actually, just going to add, um, so the Master Watershed Steward Program, which is a volunteer program where we train people with environmental science information, and then we go out and do um, lots of different education and restoration projects, um, depending on where you live. Uh, we're gonna, we are recruiting now, and that is typically county or region-based. Um, I am Philadelphia, but we have stewards throughout the state, and uh, we are going to have our training starting in March, but recruiting is now, so you'll probably find that on the various Facebook pages, or you can just look up uh, Penn State Extension Master Watershed Stewards, and then click on your county or the closest county to you, and then we can get information out to you if you're interested in being a watershed steward. Awesome. I'm going to make sure I I put that link in the show notes as well. Yeah, so... Uh, moving on, we can, or you can buy our Native Plains Healthy Planet merch uh, on our website, www.nativeplaneshealthyplanet.com. And guess what? Today is, you, you know what it is, Fran, right? It's Black yeah, Friday. It's Black Black Friday. It feels so. funny saying that on a Tuesday, but it's yeah. Black Friday. Now, and we did say we would have a discount code for There today. is a discount code right. that we put at the end of the episode, okay. which is right now, now is yeah. what I'm going to give it. There's a whole bunch of new designs that are up on the website, including hats. I know a lot of people have been anxiously awaiting hats and I kept saying the hats are coming. The hats are coming. The hats are there. There are actually hats on our our website store right now. Awesome! And you can get ten percent off of that Woo-hoo. hat, as well as a, every design that's on there, uh, by using the code Bigfoot. Ten <laughs> percent <laughs> off. Use the code Bigfoot. And uh, and that is inspired because there is uh, probably my favorite design I ever did is. Uh, is Bigfoot Habitat Manager. <laughs> so, so there's a, a nice, it's actually pretty cool. It's got like a foot, like the Bigfoot foot, the Sasquatch foot, and then inside is a, a Sasquatch walking through the mountains. All right, and, I, have, uh, I have a big question for you. Yeah. Am I putting the code in the show notes, or are we going to make people listen to get the code? Um, Yeah, put it in the show notes. Okay. Because you want to know what it's, we don't want, 
we don't want to diminish sales here because all the profits that we get from any t-shirt or, or uh, well, there's desk mats I added today. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, any sale, we're taking the profits and then we're giving them to organizations we think can really do like use this money and are doing like boots on the ground stuff in regards to habitat and native plants. So, how long is the code good for? December first, so yeah. it'll expire in a week from when people are listening to this. That way it encompasses so Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Small Business Saturday. Uh, I guess Giving Tuesday, kind of in a yeah. roundabout way. Yeah. So, yeah, so it'll encompass that. And then uh, Wacky Wednesday, <laughs> going All around to the next following Friday, <laughs> which is uh, doesn't have a name. All right, so, we're good. <laughs> yeah, All right, so we're, we're good. good. Uh, do us a favor. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show. Um, leave us a review. Uh, you can find us on any, really anywhere any you find platform, podcasts. Yeah. So whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, any of them. So uh, with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. I'm Tom. And I, <laughs> where you're going to forget to say your name. I'm not reading. I'm, <laughs> I'm riffing right now, Fran. And I am for hand. Thank you again, everyone. Beth, thank you so much. This was wonder- This was everything I'd hoped it would be, and I'm excited for this one to uh, be released into the wild. Uh, coming up next week, we're back on a normal schedule, so we'll have a buzz episode. Make sure you tune in then, and until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.